Hello, welcome to the National Affairs Podcast. I'm Dan Weiser. And I'm Evan Myers. And we are editors of National Affairs. National Affairs is a quarterly journal of essays on domestic policy, political economy, society, culture, and political thought. Aims to help Americans think a little more clearly about our public life, rise a little more capably to the challenge of self-government. This is published jointly by National Affairs Incorporated and the American Enterprise Institute. Today, we are very excited to be joined by Ovik Roy. Ovik is the president of the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity. For our fall 2021 issue, Ovik authored an essay that made the case for taking Bitcoin seriously as the best long-term store of wealth for the future, especially given the United States' current fiscal reckoning over its rising deficits and debt. He writes that, quote, in the absence of major entitlement reform, well-intentioned efforts to make treasury bonds great again are likely doomed. Instead of restricting Bitcoin in a desperate attempt to forestall the inevitable, federal policymakers would do well to embrace the role of Bitcoin as a geopolitically neutral reserve asset, work to ensure the United States continues to lead the world in accumulating Bitcoin-based wealth, jobs, and innovations, and ensure that Americans can continue to use Bitcoin to protect themselves against government-driven inflation. Ovik, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Certainly. Obviously, you talk a lot about Bitcoin throughout your essay, but we wanted to start with a question you kind of posed at the very end of your introduction to the piece. You describe it as a Solomonic choice, which is a lovely little phrase there, but you say it's a choice between protecting Americans from inflation or protecting the government's ability to engage in deficit spending, which is a very interesting kind of choice here. So for listeners who don't pay a lot of attention to monetary policy, or even maybe people like me who like tries to, but still don't really understand it, I wonder if you could kind of clarify this central choice and this bind that we're in in terms of the, the government's current fiscal policy. And like, what is this bind and how would Bitcoin help us to start to get out of this fiscal bind? Yeah, you know, the, the way I might put it is that monetary policy is the most important area of public policy that f- the fewest proportion of Americans understand. Right, right. And it's so important. It's, you know, th- there's the old adage of how like, you know, if you're a fish, you don't know that you're swimming in water, right? Because your whole life, all you've done is swim in water. And, and money is kind of like that, right? We just assume that it works and we don't think too hard in the United States, at least, about how money works. But the way money works is really important. And when money does not work the way it's supposed to, really, really bad things can happen. And when I say really bad, I mean like Nazi Germany, Zimbabwe. Things, the civilizational collapse can happen and has happened throughout human history when money and the way money works has been mismanaged. Now, why, why does this matter? Like, why am I talking about this today? Like, what's the relevance of this to our situation? The relevance of it to our situation is that monetary inflation plays a, a key role in how we finance the federal debt. So, we spend more than we take in. This is well known to anyone who listens to a national affairs podcast. And then the question becomes, how, how do we actually borrow the money? And if you and I walk through this in the article, how, how we actually borrow the money is we issue treasury bonds. Treasury bonds are, are basically a kind of a loan where if you, if you are the buyer of a treasury bond, uh, what the government is doing is paying you an interest rate to basically lend the government that 100 bucks or whatever the, the, the bond is worth with the promise that you'll get an interest payment at the end of that term of the bond, if it's a 10-year bond or a two-year bond or however, whatever the maturity or duration of the bond is. And you're assuming that the government's going to pay you back, that the government, the full faith and credit of the United States is backing that $100 that you're lending to the US government by buying the treasury bond. And, And so the mechanism by which 
the U.S. borrows money through treasury bonds, and the interest that the U.S. pays on that debt is, is kind of a way of thinking of when you take out a mortgage or you take out a credit card loan, you pay an interest on that, right? And your interest rates are higher if you are less credit worthy or more credit worthy. The basic point is that when, you bar- when the U.S. borrows money, it has to issue treasury bonds. The problem that we're seeing increasingly is that the rest of the private sector and foreign governments are not buying enough of those treasury bonds. They're not lending us the money. And all else being equal, if not enough people are lending us the money and we need to borrow a lot of money, interest rates will go up. That's how, what happens in any normal lending situation. But the US has artificially suppressed that process by saying the Federal Reserve is going to magically print more dollars which it will then use to buy the excess treasury bonds that the rest of the market's not buying. The analogy I I used in in another interview was, you know, imagine if you run up a big debt on a credit card and instead of paying off the credit card, you take out a second credit card to pay off the first credit card and then hope that that gets you through the next couple of months before the next credit card bill is due. And that's basically what the US government is doing. The US government is running a deficit, adding to the debt, issuing treasury bonds to finance that debt. And because they can't get enough takers to lend the US the money, the Federal Reserve is effectively taking out another credit card, which is the printing of US dollars. And the end result over the long term is that if you massively increase the quantity of US dollars in the economy, and the economy doesn't grow rapidly enough to soak all those dollars up, each dollar purchases less. Prices go up. And that's what we call inflation. And that is the real problem here is that this is something that that a familiar situation in, say, Argentina or Turkey, or, you know, we mentioned Zimbabwe before. That's kind of an extreme example of true hyperinflation, where literally I have in my desk a a $100 trillion bill from Zimbabwe. Now, we're we're not necessarily headed there, you know, overnight, but we're doing a lot of the same things conceptually. And all this ties back to Bitcoin because. The thing about Bitcoin is that the supply of Bitcoin is fixed at 21 million Bitcoins. That number is, is, is never going to change. You know, there will only be a maximum of 21 million Bitcoin in circulation. And so if you get comfortable around the idea that Bitcoin can be a substitute for the treasury bond, a competitor to the treasury bond, a store of your wealth that will not be inflated away by the magic expansion of the quantity of the supply then your Bitcoin over time will be worth more relative to the dollar and your dollar will be worth less. And obviously not everyone believes that today. That's what I'm asserting is controversial today. But part of my argument in the national affairs piece is that as time goes on, this will be a less controversial assertion and that over time more and more will become a mainstream idea that this is the case. That if, you, if you're concerned about the long-term value of the dollar, the long-term value of the treasury bond as a store of your wealth, then you will own Bitcoin instead of those assets. And that is good for you as a, as a way of protecting yourself from inflation. But it means, going back to your original question, that it becomes harder and harder for the US to finance its debt. Because right now, the only way the US is able to finance its debt is through two mechanisms. One, people buying treasury bonds, like we talked about. Two, the Federal Reserve increasing the number of dollars and buying treasury bonds to the degree other people don't. 
the, the Federal Reserve can continue to print dollars. They have that authority, that ability. But if fewer and fewer people buy treasury bonds, especially when you think about the debt that we keep piling up, right? Today, the debt's $29 trillion. When the debt's $100 trillion, who's going to soak up that extra $71 trillion? And so that is the, the challenge that the US has. And so there's no easy answer, right? Like a lot of us have wondered, again, the, the, the typical national affairs reader may wonder, We've been worrying about and, and Cassandraing about the, the federal debt for decades, and nothing really has happened, or nothing that seem, doesn't seem like anything has happened. So why is that? And that's also part of what I try to address in the article, and where, where Bitcoin really comes into the picture as perhaps a catalyst for America's uh, rising debt costing us economically. Yeah. Well, thanks for that wonderful introduction, Evic. You know, and it seems like Bitcoin isn't something that is on the horizon in your piece. It seems like it's something that's already here. And then I think in a big way it is. You cited a result of a recent survey of 3,000 adults, which in the fall of 2020 found that only, while only 4% of adults over 55 own cryptocurrency, slightly more than a third of those aged 35 to 44 do, and two-fifths of those aged 25 to 34 do. Likewise, as of mid-2021, Coinbase, the largest cryptocurrency exchange in the United States had 68 million verified users. And I think to a lot of listeners, that'll come as a surprise that so many people own Bitcoin or own these cryptocurrencies and are on these platforms. But what I wanted to ask is that if so much of the public, especially younger people, as well as more and more of the finance industry, we could add, has bought into Bitcoin as a serious asset for the future, why does it seem like policymakers in Washington just haven't gotten on board yet? Is it because policymakers are always sort of slow to accept new innovations or is it because they don't think our fiscal crisis is as serious as you seem to put it? Or do they have you know, real concerns with Bitcoin and cryptocurrency? Can you help us understand the gap between public opinion and policy on, on this front? Yeah, Evan, I mean, it's, it's all the above, right? I mean, I think I'm glad you brought up that survey data because I think it's really, it really highlights something that I think a lot of people in Washington need to understand in particular, which is that there's a massive generation gap when it comes to Bitcoin and cryptocurrency more broadly. As you said, 5% of people over 55 own Bitcoin. Well, who are senators and congressmen and the people who run think tanks and, and, and the people who are generally in positions of power and influence in Washington? People over 55, right? Generally speaking, <laughs> uh, in, in the case of our president, uh, you know, even older than that. And yet for millennials, for Gen Z, you know, Bitcoin is, uh, is everywhere and to the annoyance of many, perhaps who haven't gotten in it or are annoyed by their friends who were in it earlier and, and have profited from the, from the trade or the investment or whatever you want to call it. And I, I hear that a lot from my younger friends who are always saying it. they're either really annoyed by all the people who are talking about Bitcoin around them, or they're one of the people who's talking about Bitcoin all the time. <laughs> but that's a normal part of conversation among younger people when, when younger people talk about their financial future and, and finance and money and things like that. But for older people, it's like, what is this thing, right? And that obviously, when you think about the median age of a US congressperson, it's very much in that elderly part of the equation. There is this massive generation gap. And, 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 and as I talk about in the National Affairs piece, for people for whom digital friendships, digital romance, digital commerce, digital media is natural, digital money is also natural. And for those who grew up in perhaps a more tangible analog world, it's really hard, often understandably, to get your head around the idea that a piece of software could actually be money. My question for you is actually, could you tell us kind of what Bitcoin is? And then also, I wanted to kind of talk about some of the, the ethical dilemmas that, that people cite with Bitcoin. I mean, 
in a congressional hearing in July, Senator Elizabeth Warren said that it puts the financial system at the whims of some shadowy, faceless group of super coders. And Janet Yellen, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, asserted that it's the reality of cryptocurrencies is that they've been used to launder the profits of online drug traffickers and they've fueled tool to finance terror. Maybe she would call it financial terrorism too, I'm not sure. But yeah, I, I guess I just want to know, like, what is this thing that you, that you think is really helpful and why do other people seem to think it's so, so damaging? Bitcoin is seen as this kind of edgy, techie thing because of the blockchain and the computer science breakthroughs that, that allow Bitcoin to, to, to have the functionality that it has. But the people who would call themselves Bitcoiners, the people for whom Bitcoin is not merely a way to have success in, in investing, but for people for whom it's a social and political movement, these are people who are arguably monetary conservatives, right? What they're arguing for, what, what any true Bitcoin believer is arguing for is the monetary system that existed before the Great Society, the monetary system that existed before 1971, the, the monetary system that humanity worked with successfully, broadly speaking, for a very long time with some challenges and, and without, you know, there were economic crises in the past. There have been plenty of economic crises in recent decades as well. But the point is, the people who support Bitcoin are actually, they're both technological futurists, but also arch conservatives in the way that they think about what money is and what money ought to be. And one of the things I draw in the piece, and, and we can get to this a, a little bit later, is, is how Bitcoin itself really derives a lot of its intellectual underpinnings from the Austrian School of Economics. And so let's just bookmark that for a minute. We can talk about that a little later. But the intellectual heritage and the tradition, the monetary tradition that Bitcoin is calling to is thousands of years old, even though it's a very, very new technology. The tail end of your question, you asked, okay, so what about this fact that, you know, that there are, there are people using it for ransomware attacks and, and other things like that, and, and people are using it to, to, to maybe hide their money from the IRS or something like that? Well, first of all, it's, it's not that easy, actually. It's a misconception that you can really hide your Bitcoin, because in certain ways, Bitcoin is actually less private than cash. You know, the reason why drug deals are all done with suitcases of cash is because if I hand you a suitcase of cash... You know, there's no record of the fact that I handed you that suitcase of cash. You can try to trace the numbers on the, on the bills and see where they came from, but it's pretty hard to do that. Whereas with Bitcoin, because of the way the Bitcoin blockchain works, every transaction has a record. Now, it may not say Evan Myers on the record. It may not say Ovik Roy on the record. It's going to be a string of hexadecimal code, kind of like an email address, you could say. But yeah. basically, if I, if I send you $100 worth of Bitcoin tomorrow, there is a transaction that's permanently on this global database that says, you know, wallet address A70B6, blah, 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 sent $100 worth of Bitcoin to, yeah. you know, wallet address, whatever. Like a Venmo or something like that. Yeah, it's similar to that. I mean, so it's or a credit card transaction, right? You know, so the wallet address is a string of code and doesn't necessarily have a name connected to it explicitly, there's a company called Chainalysis that works with a lot of law enforcement agencies to trace, to do exactly this kind of tracing. So if, if you yeah. buy $100 worth of Bitcoin on Coinbase, you have to give over your kind of personal ID information to Coinbase to do that transaction. And then if I then give $100 to you, Evan, to go assassinate somebody, the FBI is going to know that because they're going to know that I bought the money on Coinbase, I bought the Bitcoin on Coinbase, and then I handed it to this other guy 
And, the, and if you then take that $100 worth of Bitcoin and exchange it at Coinbase or some other crypto exchange, which also is similarly connected to the real world, then they're going to know that it's you and me who are connected, right? So all that to say that Bitcoin is not as anonymous as people think it is. There are other cryptocurrencies that are actually much more oriented towards being anonymous, and we can drive down that rabbit hole if you want to. But Bitcoin is actually not really that anonymous. It's actually in certain ways more traceable than cash. And actually, there were some people, ex-CIA people, who actually did a study say, okay, how, what percentage of fraud, criminal activity, terrorism, ransomware is being conducted with Bitcoin relative to its amount in circulation versus yeah. the US dollar? And the US dollar was a much greater share. So all yeah. that to say that you know, if we're going to ban currencies because people are using them to engage in criminal activity, then we should ban the U.S. dollar. But we don't. So, isn't, isn't the deeper philosophical disagreement from people like Senator Elizabeth Warren and Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, though, is they don't believe in this Austrian school ideal of separating money in the state? And and could you kind of explore? I think the premise of Bitcoin and and maybe this kind of arch conservative sensibility is that the money in the state should be separated. Is that true? And 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 then. Are there arguments against that that, that make sense to you or are you bought in? Yeah, I think there's, there's a couple of elements to it. One of them is that for a certain kind of lefty, there's this term of art that you're hearing a lot in the, the Biden administration, the regulatory perimeter. That term is all of a sudden, I never heard that term before, like literally 2021, and I'm hearing this That's term all the time me. now, <laughs> the regulatory perimeter. And what you hear a lot of Biden administration folks say is, we don't like X because it's outside the regulatory perimeter, by which they mean, if you are someone who fundamentally believes the government should be in control of society and control of the economy, the idea that there's this economic system or subsystem that is outside of government control really, really irritates you. It just irritates you the way like a scab on your forearm irritates you. You want to get rid of the scab because the idea that there could be something that there could be a way for me to send Evan Myers $100 without Elizabeth Warren having a way to stop that transaction from happening is incredibly irritating. And so that is something that Bitcoin could do for both good and for ill. So, you know, it is true that if just to be very blunt about it, very honest, if I want to send $100 to ISIS using Bitcoin, I can actually, I might get arrested for doing it later because, again, people will know that the Bitcoin came from me. But no one can stop the transaction from actually happening, right? Like I can send $100 to ISIS in Bitcoin. Now, that may lead your listeners to be like, okay, that's it. We should ban Bitcoin. Well, you know what the flip side of that is? If you're the leader of the opposition in Venezuela or Russia, the Russian government can't stop me from sending money to Alexei Navalny. The Venezuelan government can't stop me from sending money to Juan Guaido in Venezuela for the, exactly the same reasons. And we should be much more oriented in that direction, right? Just to say, if we want to undermine tyrannies around the world, Bitcoin is the most important vehicle for liberating people from tyranny that's possibly ever been developed since the internet itself, right? When the internet first came about, I'm old enough to remember this, one of the things people celebrated about the internet is that it allowed people to communicate with each other without the state being able to block you, right? Like you yeah. could send an email to dissidents in Czechoslovakia without having to send an actual letter that the, you know, the secret police would open before it got to Vaclav Havel, right? Yeah. And Bitcoin is basically the financial version of that. And an analogy I, I mentioned in the piece 
or an example or a case study I, I mentioned in the in the National Affairs article is is take the Apple Daily. Apple Daily was until very recently the the longstanding pro democracy newspaper in Hong Kong, an irritant to the People's Republic of China, just like the scab I was mentioning earlier, the Elizabeth Warren scab. And for the longest time, you know, the PRC tried to hassle Apple Daily. They jailed its publisher. They made it clear that if you were associated with Apple Daily, you were going to get demerits on the social credit scale or whatever it is, but they still couldn't stop it from publishing. They kept publishing. Finally, the PRC passed a new national security law in Hong Kong and froze the bank accounts of Apple's Daily, Apple Daily. And as a result, Apple Daily couldn't pay its journalists. It couldn't pay the printers. It couldn't pay its suppliers. And all of a sudden, Apple Daily was no more. Within a week, Apple Daily shut down. So jailing the publisher of Apple Daily didn't prevent Apple Daily from continuing its operations, but freezing its bank accounts did. And this is what Bitcoin enables. And this is why China as a country is fundamentally incompatible with Bitcoin. Because at the end of the day, what does Bitcoin allow you to do? It allows you to exchange in commercial transactions, enter into commercial transactions without the approval or disapproval of the government. And yes, that means that certain types of law enforcement or sanctions regimes or other things will be more difficult for the US to execute. But the flip side is we'll be able to support dissidents against tyrants all around the world. That's a very interesting, Ovik. And I think you know, obviously that'll be something that policymakers can debate going forward. But to kind of wrap up here, I wanted to sort of ask you about the future of Bitcoin. You definitely, at toward the end of your piece, you raised a couple of, of big concerns for you going forward. One, that there would be some sort of crackdown on Bitcoin by lawmakers or Federal Reserve or whatever, but also that the Federal Reserve in particular would want to develop a central bank digital currency. And you know, obviously, given what you've already discussed in this conversation in your piece, you would be against that because the whole point of Bitcoin is that it can't be controlled by central governments and therefore can help dissidents, as you say, or for other things. But so, yeah, tell us a little bit about these concerns that you have about the future of Bitcoin. And also, are there certain things you're looking for Congress to do, for example, to start to integrate Bitcoin and digital currencies into our monetary system to make it more stable, less prone to debt and inflation, all those good things? Yeah, so there's, there's a lot to talk about here. And obviously, we, we have a limited amount of time. And, and for people who want to learn more about our work at, at my think tank, the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity, you can, you can visit our website to, to learn more about this. It's freeop.org, F-R-E-O-P-P.org. There's two core priorities that I, that I highlight in terms of just how to think about Bitcoin if you are a member of Congress or a regulator or a policy influencer or whatever in DC. The first is don't ban Bitcoin. And you can't really ban Bitcoin in, in, in much the way you can't really ban email. You can't prevent email from existing. You can make it harder for Americans to use email, but you can't ban the existence of email around the world. Similarly, you can't ban Bitcoin. You can make it harder for Americans to use it, particularly law-abiding Americans. But it's very hard to prevent Bitcoin, the network, from existing. But it's important not to prevent the network from existing. And the reason why is that to the degree Congress is unable to reduce the debt and reduce the deficit and get its fiscal house in order, leading to the inevitability of inflation, like we talked about at the beginning of the podcast, Americans have the right and deserve to have the right and the ability to protect themselves from inflation by being able to invest in assets that can't be inflated away. For people who are worried about the fiscal irresponsibility of Washington and the rise of inflation, the specter of inflation, if we can't fix that problem, and we ought to fix that problem, but if we can't, if we cannot, then we ought to, at the very least, give Americans the ability to protect themselves 
from Washington's inability to reduce the debt and deficit. So don't ban Bitcoin. Make sure that Bitcoin is legal, it's, that it's legal to exchange US dollars for Bitcoin. Give people that escape valve from inflation and fiscal irresponsibility. That's obviously something that Washington will, Washington will be tempted to do the opposite, because obviously if, if it's in Washington's interest to, to keep borrowing money ad infinitum, then Washington's going to want to force people to buy those treasury bonds and not have alternatives. So I think it's really important for people who believe in economic freedom to understand how important it is to put freedom above that priority. And then the second piece, which you alluded to, is this, this whole idea of a central bank digital currency. And you know that may seem like a really obscure, who cares, sort of some wonky technical thing, kind of, you know, it sounds like paint drying or something. <laughs> uh, and, and I have a piece in on National Review Online that I, that I wrote about this recently as well, about uh, specifically about central bank digital currencies, expanding on the paragraph that I put in the National Affairs piece on this topic. And the basic idea is this, central bank digital currencies are the exact opposite of Bitcoin. So you hear people say, oh, well, uh, central bank digital currency, that's a way of adapting the technology behind that underlies Bitcoin and applying it to the US dollar. It's a way of modernizing the US dollar. That's the way it's described often in the press. But the opposite is true. The central bank digital currency is the exact opposite of Bitcoin. It's a centrally controlled version of the US dollar in which, unlike Bitcoin, which is at least mostly private, it's not entirely private as we discussed, but it's mostly private, a central bank digital currency would be completely non-private. Every single thing you do with your money will be, you know, everyone's debating this bill in Congress about whether, you know, the IRS will have visibility into your bank accounts or not. A central bank digital currency is like a 200 proof version of that. <laughs> which is to say, with a central bank digital currency, if I go buy uh, some M&Ms at CVS on my way home from work, the Federal Reserve will know about it. I mean, that's the level of granularity, detail, and surveillance that a central bank digital currency affords the federal government. This is why China is the pioneer in developing central bank digital currencies. In fact, they have been piloting the central bank digital currency, a blockchain version of the renminbi, in most of the major cities in China, and it's going to be rolled out in the 2022 Beijing Winter Olympics, which is, we're recording this podcast in November of 2021. That's three months from now, four months from now, it's here, right? So yeah. we're going to have a central bank digital currency in China, and it would be a catastrophic mistake to say, oh gosh, we've got to keep up with China and mimic their ability to surveil and control their citizens. It's not just the surveillance piece, by the way, it's also the fact that if the Federal Reserve has a central bank digital currency, and instead of putting your money in a checking account at Bank of America or Chase or Wells Fargo, you're depositing your money with the Federal Reserve, they can add or subtract money to your account whenever they want. They can shut off your bank accounts whenever they want. They have complete control over your ability to interact with the rest of the economy, which is why, again, China loves this system and exactly why America should not. It's fundamentally an un-American idea, the idea that the Federal Reserve would have that level of surveillance and control over your economic activity. So CBDC may seem like this very obscure, wonky topic, but it is actually the gravest threat to Americans' freedom and privacy that has possibly ever been conceived. And wow. it's incredibly important that people pay more attention to this because it is a serious, it is being seriously considered by the government. The Federal Reserve is putting out a long think piece exploring the possibility of having a CBDC. President Biden has nominated to run the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency. 
a woman named Saul Omarova, who has written a paper out of Cornell Law School called The People's Ledger, where she walks through in a positive way all the wonderful things that the, the government will be able to control about your behavior if the, of the CBDC is developed. So this is a real thing. And I know I sound like a hothead describing it this way, but it's, it's, it's a serious threat and people have to be, if people aren't aware that it's a threat, it's more likely to actually happen. So people need to be more aware of it. Yeah. All right. So what I'm leaving with is Friedrich Hayek, not Xi Jinping. Mm-hmm. And I have one more question for you. It's very short. A lot of people, when I read your piece, I looked into this and a lot of people have asked who Satoshi Nakamoto is because the guy who invented Bitcoin, no one, guy or, or, or lady, no one quite knows who it is. And Ovik, I just got to ask at the end, are you Satoshi Nakamoto? <laughs> Look, if I, if I were, then I, I'd probably be hiding in a bunker somewhere and not talking to you about how, how interesting <laughs> Bitcoin is, first of all. And, and so, I mean, look, I think it's totally understandable that Satoshi Nakamoto has been very paranoid about his own security. Because the fact is, other people who tried in the past, pre-Satoshi, to develop an electronic version of cash basically were imprisoned for trying to do so. There's a litany of examples of this because the government, the US government does not want anyone attempting to compete with the US dollar. And so Satoshi was very aware of this history. And that's why he, he operated pseudonymously in developing Bitcoin, which is a remarkable breakthrough in computer science and economics and politics in many ways, and behavioral finance. I mean, he was really, it's just incredible the number of disciplines that Nakamoto was fluent in and synthesized to build Bitcoin. It's, it really is. The more you study it, the more impressive it is. And you know, I, I do want to bring it back to this point about Hayek and von Mises, because it's, it is really important, for, for, particularly, again, for, for your audience to understand that Bitcoin is the 21st century manifestation of classical liberal economic ideas about monetary policy. Hayek, in particular, I'd encourage anyone who's interested in this topic to read a book by Hayek that he published in the most recent edition of in 1990 called The Denationalization of Money. And that book is all about this concept of separating money and state. And the idea being that because governments can't be trusted to keep the quantity of their money relatively constant, they always have the temptation to create more money because it creates short-term sugar-high economic stimulus at the expense of long-term soundness of the economy, just like deficits are a short-term sugar high in exchange for votes and re-election, but, but long-term problems. You know, Monetary policy is very similar in that respect. Hayek thought that, well, we should, ha- we should have some sort of currency again that is independent of governments. And we just have to, he called this an admittedly radical idea because there was no clear pathway in 1990 or 1980 to create this alternative form of money. But now we have it. And again, to, to, to talk about Ludwig von Mises, who was really the founder of the, the Austrian School of Economics, he was somebody who, who talked about this in the context of the Bill of Rights. The Bill of Rights has a lot of language around preventing the ruling class from seizing your property unfairly in one form or another. It's in the Bill of Rights for a reason, because traditionally in monarchies, in the British system, that was something you could do, right? The, the, the kings and princes did this routinely, where they just confiscated people's property without warrants, without legal justification. And Mises's point was that inflation is no different than unlawful seizure or eminent domain or searching your house without a warrant. It's very, very similar, because when you have inflation, it's basically 
Milton Friedman called it taxation without legislation. You know, because what you're doing is you're inflating the money supply to create more money for the government to do what it wants to do at your expense. And the sinister part of it is inflation is so subtle that you may not notice that it's happening until it's too late. So I really encourage people who can't get their hands around Bitcoin, if they really want a kind of gateway drug to understand it, go back and read Mises, go back and read Hayek, read The Denationalization of Money, read The Theory of Money and Credit by Mises, and and that will give you a kind of an intellectual grounding for why Bitcoin has turned out to be so interesting and so compelling to so many people. Wow. Ovik, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, my pleasure. Thanks for all you do. Yeah, no, we appreciate it, Ovik. If you'd like to read Ovik's essay or other articles in National Affairs, please visit our website at nationalaffairs.com and consider subscribing. In addition to a printed copy of National Affairs, subscribers retain unlimited access to our online archives. And you can listen to more episodes of our podcast by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and other podcast apps. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter at National Affairs. Thanks for listening.